Jericho Road is a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church. It's a Sunday school class that happens at 9.30 on Sunday mornings, and you're welcome to join us. These days, we're studying Genesis as it leads into Exodus. It's a great sequel, and we hope to get you thinking about an old story in a new way. We are continuing our study of Genesis and its sequel, Exodus, by moving into a story that really uh, goes south for God's people very quickly. Uh, What began as life, uh, meaning the grain that was given to them by Joseph, who was Pharaoh's number two man to save their family during a time of famine, quickly becomes death as they are sold into slavery. Uh, And now this morning, we're going to see that the wheels continue to fall off for God's people to the point that only God can save them. But I want us to turn, if you've got a table Bible, to Exodus chapter 1, beginning with the 15th verse. And if you don't have a Bible nearby, you can look on. It's page 43 on your table Bible. Exodus 1, 15. We're going to read until chapter 2 in the fourth verse. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other Puah, When you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a boy, kill him. If it's a girl, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and allowed the boys to live? The midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Yeah, right. So, so, so God dwelt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very strong. Because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. And Pharaoh commanded all of his people, Every boy that is born to the Hebrews you shall throw into the Nile, but you shall let every girl live. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman. And the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine baby, she hid him for three months. When she could no longer hide him, she got a papyrus basket for him and plastered it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds on the bank of the river. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. So here we are. Um, In order to understand Exodus, I think we need to recap at least three building blocks of what we've been learning so far. I believe Genesis and Exodus are national stories that were written to unite the people at the time of the exile. Now, I'll remind you quickly what I'm referring to. 600 years before Jesus' birth, God's people were taken in captivity by the Babylonian army. They breached the city walls of Jerusalem, and it was the novel idea of this Babylonian ruler to take the best and the brightest of their subject peoples to a mega city far, far away and put them into forced labor. Now, while we'll have great details about the Egyptian slavery and their life in Egypt for for centuries before God saved them, we don't know much about the exile, much more than a reference in the book of 2 Kings. Rather, you hear whispers of it because they got busy while while they were there far away from home. They got busy writing the Bible that we have or the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, They got busy telling their story so that they wouldn't lose their identity, but we still hear whispers of how bad it must have been. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? By the waters of Babylon, we sat and we wept. Some stories are just too sad to talk about, and I think this is what happens with the exile. But they did write a national story. Genesis and Exodus are these. And we all need national stories to keep us together as a people. We have them. See if you can finish these. One small step for man...
Exactly. How about we have nothing to fear? Jesus. Right. It's the economy. Exactly. We all, we all know stories. They make us a nation. I mean, it's a, shared, it's a shared narrative that we all tell. So that's the first building block. I want you to think of Genesis and Exodus not merely as something that happened a long, long time and, and far, far away, but rather a story to bring them together and to give them hope in hard times. That's the first building block. The second one is that theirs were learning, and I mentioned this in the introduction, theirs is a hard world. It's a tough world because the world doesn't know God like they do. This is another universal application of Exodus. This is what happens when you live in a world that doesn't know God. Uh, last week, we learned about the word know in the Hebrew language. Yoda, know, means more than knowledge. It also means relationship. And if we know someone in this way, we are shaped by uh, that relationship. And if we know God, then we're going to do what God does. And we were told last week that there arose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph, which means that this Pharaoh had no relationship, no ethic that had been given to them in the garden from Genesis chapter chapter 2 and 3. Remember the ethic that was given to Adam and Eve? Vocation, permission, prohibition. Vocation, we're all given a job to do no matter our age or circumstance. Permission, we do it in our own way. And prohibition, you must not eat of the tree and the fruit of the garden. So not only is Genesis a national story, it's also an ethic that Pharaoh doesn't share. So we learned last week that Pharaoh begins to treat the Hebrews harshly, and that word uh, ruthlessly and harshly is a word that is so specific, uh, it means cruelty and it means unfair expectations. The slavery is so awful that it's forbidden of the Hebrew people to do this to their own servants and their own slaves in the book of Leviticus three times. And yet it's done to them because they live in a world that does not know God. It's cruel. And we see this building. What begins with slavery is now genocide of all their male children. There's irony in this. this is the third building block is this. The first one, it's a national story. The second one is it's a world that doesn't know God. And third, this story is full of irony. It's an upside down story. I think this is kind of cool, but I just read a verse to you that had Shifra and Pua's name. I think it's cool that in all of recorded history, we get to know the names of two humble midwives, but we don't know the name of the Pharaoh. We never know the name of the Pharaoh. And that's intentionally written that way. They don't care about the Pharaoh. What they care about are the righteous midwives who follow God. My friend Edan has a theory, and my friend Edan lives in, in Israel, and he's an archaeologist. He has a theory that the reason why the Hebrew people are so reticent about talking about the afterlife. They don't really say much more than sleeping with your ancestors or resting, you know, resting with God. Uh, they talk about a sleep or shadowy continuation, if you will, of, of who we are. They don't really go into specifics because the Egyptians went into great specifics. The Egyptians spent their whole lives worried about the afterlife and they, they packed gold around their kings and they embalmed and they put a boat in there and animals in there and they had all these specifics about what would happen and so the Hebrews wanted to be different. And again, this is just a little glimpse, I think, an honoring of two Hebrew midwives and not the king himself. You know, the Bible's always that way, right? It's always an upside-down story. God always takes the side of the powerless uh, over the powerful, which you've got to, if you compare it to other ancient writers, if you compare it to other stories of the same era, it was unheard of in that world. 
the gods, the small g gods, always sided with the king, always sided with those in power. The national stories that they always told had their God defeating your God. What happens when God identifies with slaves? That's part of the drama of the story. Okay, I want to fast forward and just show you sort of how all the stories in the Bible hang. I want to fast forward 1,500 years to the book of Philippians, which might be one of my favorite little books. The slide that I'm showing you behind me is, is a Roman road called the Via Ignatia. And it's, a, it's fascinating that, that Roman roads are still in existence. And yes, that's my shoe in the picture. I take terrible pictures. Uh, the reason why I took that picture is because that, that's actually a chariot rut uh, in the Via Ignatia. So you can still see evidence of, of, of Roman life there going into the city of Philippi. Uh, and Paul stood on that road. So I'm actually standing somewhere where Paul stood. And what I want you to do is I want you to turn with me to page 954, if you've got a Bible in front of you, to the book of Philippians, and I'll tell you a little bit about it. So 954, and while you're turning, let me give you the skinny, why I love this letter so much. It's a letter, it's not, it's not a book. And letters were a common form of correspondence in the Roman world. So in a way, you have a little piece of archaeology in the back of your Bibles. It's a, it's a Roman letter. In the year 51, a guy named Paul took a business trip around the known world. And in addition to his, his business endeavors, he carried around a big idea that he called the gospel. And that gospel also included this national story of Exodus. And the reason why I say it this way is that our communion words are Passover words, which means that they're Exodus words, which, the, which means that this national story is also our story as well. And I'll show you how this works. But he started churches, and they would be called churches in time, but the original word for church, ecclesia, really meant a trade organization, like a union hall. And so people are doing business with each other. They talked about the gospel and they lived the gospel and they tried to lead lives that were different in the way that God wants us to be different. But Philippi was a tough case. That's a good Roman road leading into a good Roman city with lots of good Roman retired soldiers. And they were hyper loyal to the Roman Empire. And so I will say, I will quote Paul on a Sunday morning. I will say, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, which is how Paul would begin his letters. Well, if you're a Roman retiree, a centurion, uh, grace and peace were gifts of Caesar, not of God. If you're calling Jesus Christ Lord, then you're announcing a loyalty to someone besides the emperor in Rome. You see how this works? And so in Philippi, they would get beat up all the time and they'd be arrested in the middle of the night and it was hard to be a Christian. And, and they did it with joy and, the, and they did it with such courage and such ennobled dignity that now the words that, that we all know from Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always, again, I say rejoice, ought to mean something because it was hard. I remember a very wise teacher of mine once said, if, if I'm such a great Christian, why am I not more of an insurance risk? Okay, so that just know that Philippi, the, the joy that they carried came with the cross. I mean, it came with being different in the way that the world asked them to be different. And so you've got Philippians chapter two, and if you've got your Bible open, you notice that this is a little narrower margin, verses six through 11. That's because this is a hymn that Paul did not write. They already knew it. So this is another little piece of archaeology just in your laps, and I'm going to read it to you. Oh, I have it, on the, I have it on the screen as well. Let me pull it up. We'll begin with verse 5. 
Philippians 2, 5. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Okay, that's the same way of saying no God in the way the Hebrew said no God. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Where I want to go back to is this one. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Okay, know Jesus, know Jesus to the point that you do what Jesus does. Know Jesus to the point that you think how Jesus thinks. Know Jesus to the point that your priorities are Jesus' priorities. Though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but he took the form of a slave. Did you catch that? What an upside-down world that God identifies with slaves. Okay, here's an interesting fact. Across the Roman Empire, at the time of this letter, uh, more than half the population of the world would have been enslaved people in their world. Now, can you imagine them singing this song in a very, very, very Roman town with Roman priorities and, and a Roman ethos, and yet they're saying that God is also a slave? It was mind-blowing for them to consider that the God of the universe would identify with their human property. Imagine if you were a slave, or imagine if you were homeless, or imagine if you were desperately poor, or imagine if you were forgotten. God is like me. We have to always be very, very careful when we do outreach in, in, the, in parts of our city where desperately poor people live. We need to always be very, very careful and re remember that God takes the side of the poor, God hears the cries of the poor, but also God did not give us the poor to make us feel better about ourselves or to give us a moment on Christmas Eve. Those people have the dignity uh, that God demands. When I was a young man, I had a, a I'll, we'll probably tell the story on Ash Wednesday, so you might hear it again in some form, but when I was a young man, I started a soup kitchen in Montgomery. I was dreaming of the ministry, and it was a ministry that took off, took off really rapidly. We were feeding people every day around the corner, and, and, and I was busy serving green beans, and a fellow walked through. I didn't even look up. We were so busy serving food, and he said, do you have a napkin somewhere? And I just pointed at this paper towel roll that was sitting up on top, and I, and I, and I realized he had stopped in front of me. I, I looked up, and he was staring a hole in me, just staring a hole, and I looked right into his eyes. He said, a napkin. You didn't bring us a napkin? See, I was serving green beans, but I wasn't serving dignity. Remember that I believe the man was an angel. I've always, I've, he's haunted me my whole life and I've always tried to endeavor it. And I fail from time to time uh, to, to give people the, the dignity uh, that they require because God identifies with the poor. Well, that's part of the upside down or the irony of Genesis and Exodus and the rest of the Bible that God would identify with slaves. Remember that God's people are slaves in the world's superpower at the time with the most powerful army, with the ability to do anything that they want to do. And as we continue through the story, we're going to see how God will save them, but not before Pharaoh ups his game. 
Now, remember the midwives win with that story. Well, the Hebrew women are so vigorous, they have the baby before we arrive. Uh, and so Pharaoh has to go back, rats, uh, has to go back to the drawing board. And so he says, every baby boy shall be thrown into the Nile. Okay, here's some more irony. Okay, Moses is in a basket in the Nile. I'll say some more about that. We also know the story because we've seen the movie, Pharaoh's successor's army is destroyed in the Nile. So it's interesting that Pharaoh's own Nile prediction uh, comes back to, to bite in the end. If you've got a table Bible, this is a fun little aside. I want you to turn to page 55, which is an important story to me. It's dear to my heart. This is the song of Miriam. At the top of the page, it's just two verses. Uh, it's Exodus chapter 15, verses 20 and 21. And you'll be interested to know that this is, this is the first Bible lesson or the first scripture that I learned on my first day of seminary and my first class. All right, how about that for first? First day, nine o'clock, first lesson. Not Genesis chapter one, not Matthew chapter one, okay? Not Philippians chapter one, or anything, but Exodus 15. Why did we start here? This is because Pharaoh's army, the world's superpower, has just been utterly destroyed by God. Now, again, we let this story get right by us, right? Because we know the movie, and we're thinking about the green jello water and Charlton Heston. But let's, let's take ourselves out of the story as if we've never heard it before. God saved slaves. God saved slaves who couldn't save themselves. God saved people who had no value otherwise. God revealed God's priorities, and Miriam stands on the banks of the sea, if you will, that is now closed uh, over this mighty army. Then the prophet Miriam, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand, and with all the women, she went out after her tambourines and with dancing, and Miriam sang to them. And this, these are the words in Hebrew. Thank you. <laughs> Sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. I think, I think my professor wanted me to learn this on day one, class one, hour one, because our message to the world is this. God saves even when we can't especially when we can't. But let's go back to the story because there's more than that. We're told that, um, that a baby boy was born and he was put into a basket into the Nile River. Do you remember that little detail from, from chapter two, verse three? She got a papyrus basket. Now, remember, this is a national story. And remember, we don't know Hebrew, but the word for basket here, uh, and if you've got an open table Bible, you can turn back to page 43 and you can underline the word basket because the word basket is ark. And that's no mistake. Remember, Genesis, Exodus, they're the same story. They're national stories. One is a sequel to the other. And they all knew this story. God had saved them before. Now, the first part of Genesis, remember we started this thing last fall and I told you that the story of us really begins with Genesis chapter 12, which is the night that, that Abraham stepped out under the stars and God said that your children are gonna be those stars above your head and we are those stars, we are those children. The, the story of us really begins when Abraham stepped out in faith and decided to, to walk with God and be different in the way that he asked us. And so Genesis 1 through 11 are stories that we call prehistory. But let me tell you a good theory on, on what we think happened there. When God's people were taken away in exile to Babylon, 
there were many, many common stories that they all shared. And so one of the purposes of this was not to, to write a science book or not write a history book, but Genesis 1 through 11 would be called prehistory. They took the stories that people told and they repurposed them so that they would teach their children about who God was and who, and, and who they would be. The Babylonians, for instance, had myths that were violent and the earth, the Babylonians believed, would, would be created out of the chaos of war, which would give them the the license, if you will, to capture people and take them far away from home. I mean, their national stories shape their national life. And so, so, the, so the children going to school with Babylonian children or living in a Babylonian world, walking under the, the Babylonian shrines to Babylonian gods, they were losing their religion. So their parents called them together and they told them stories that had been told for generation upon generation upon generation that would eventually become Genesis 1 through 11 about a good God who built a good earth and asked us to take care of it and asked us to take care of each other and gave us an ethic because there's some things that we cannot have, but there are many things that we can do. And it was generous and it was creative and it was the Hebrew religion. This is what these stories would do. But they did it by telling stories that were familiar to them at the time. And one of these is the flood. Genesis 6 through 10 actually involves Noah and his ark. And here's a fun fact. I got this off the internet. You ready? Research has uncovered about 200 ancient flood stories from all over the world. Did you know that? All the way from China to the Near East, to the Americas, to Indonesia. In 80% of these flood stories, there's a favored family. In 70% of these flood stories, there is a boat. 67% of these flood stories, there are animals on board. 66% of these flood stories, the flood is due to the wickedness of humankind. 57% of these flood stories, the boat rests on a mountaintop. Something happened. Something happened. I mean, maybe it was the end of the last glaciation and a lot of water on the world. I, something happened. So the Hebrews took that story, that common memory of something happening, and they retold it with an ark and a man named Noah. But there's a significant difference between the Genesis ark story and the Moses ark story. And this is what I want us to, to think about as we start to wrap this up this morning. Noah's ark is a passive story. Moses' ark is an active story. And I'll give you an example. God tells Noah to build an ark. Rain is coming. Okay. You know, he builds an ark, right? Uh, Moses argues all the time. You're going to see it. Argues and bargains and, and carries on. Uh, the former chief rabbi of Britain, Jonathan Sachs, wrote that Noah is pious, but he's not a leader. Moral integrity demands a response, demands a fight. It demands effort. So if Exodus teaches us anything, God does not want passive followers. We are to participate uh, in our story. Brings me back to an idea that I've been working on, and I want you to th think about this. You know, I tell you that the Exodus is a huge backstory that we're, we're, we're supposed to know, right? The Exodus means that if God did something once, God will do it again. The Exodus means that God saves slaves, which means God will save God. God saves slaves, which means that God will save me. The Exodus uh, means that. Uh, that we are given a promised land. The Exodus means that we can go home. The Exodus means that God hears our prayers. The Exodus means that God 
sides with the poor and the lowly. I mean, we keep going and going and going. The Exodus is our national story and it's our origin story. We read the Bible because we believe that if God did it once, God's gonna come back and do it again. That's the Exodus. In the Transfiguration, which we're reading uh, this morning in, uh, in, in upstairs in church and down here in the Word, it's the story that we always read before Ash Wednesday. In Luke's version of that story, Moses and Elijah talking to Jesus. Remember, he glows white, and there's the smoke and the light and the fire and the cloud, and they're talking to Jesus about his exodus. So we even see the cross and the resurrection Easter Sunday as our exodus into a better life, into eternal life, Certainly heaven waiting on us, of course, but also better life now, a life where we know God, where we see the kingdom right under our noses. So the exodus is very, very important, but let's shoot straight. Sometimes I just don't feel saved. I don't feel saved from anything. If the exodus means that God will save me, I got to take that on faith, but some days it's just really hard. That's why we have another backstory intention, and that backstory is the exile the exile. Now, I mentioned it when we started the class, 600 years before Jesus. They got busy. They wrote the Bible and all that. But just remember, if the exodus means that God will save us, the exile means that sometimes we just got to wait. And we've got to live in hope and we've got to trust even when we can't see. That feels right to me. I think that the best thing that St. Luke's can do for all of us is to help us live as exile people. Because what did they do in the exile? They got busy. They never, they never gave in. They never quit. Is life hard? Sure. Do people understand this? Of course not. Will people think you're foolish for taking the side of the poor? Of course they will. Okay. Uh, but we love anyway. We, we, we stay busy anyway. We pray anyway. We hope anyway. We smile anyway. We're different the way that God asks us to be different uh, anyway. It's a strange fact of the Hebrew Scriptures that of the 613 commands that you find in the Torah, which they wrote down during the exile, There's no word for obey, only listen, only respond, only engage. Here in exile, all of us as exile people can listen for the voice of God who knows us and will come and save us in the end. Amen.